We uh, are in the middle of our Advent series on dawn, light dawning. I can tell you the exact moment of the exact day when I knew that it was time for me to get out of youth ministry. It was a fall uh, of 1993, and it was 4.45 in the morning. And I was staring out the window of the West County YMCA, just waiting with great anticipation for the dawn. I was in the very last lock-in of my life with senior high school students. We had been up all night. We had been up all the day before and all night, and we had played racquetball all night, and we had played basketball all night, and we had had all kinds of food to eat, and we had a band, and it was crazy. We had, I don't know how many hundred kids there, and I just was looking outside saying, please, God, let the dawn come. I'm just too old. And somebody came up and said, I think we've lost a couple of kids. Uh, we're not sure where they are. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't care. Well, they'll, they may show up. They may not. Have you ever heard of acceptable losses? Let's just pray for the dawn. Because the new light meant the new day was going to dawn in, in my life. Last week, we, we talked about the term astronomical dawn. And the astronomical dawn, I think we have a picture of it, is uh, the moment after which the sky is no longer completely dark. And we talked about that last week of the prophecy in Isaiah, which we're going to read again in just a minute, how that, that there's a, a glimmer of hope on the horizon and you can just barely see off to the east uh, that a new day is coming. But the sun is still 18 degrees below the horizon. And as we looked at Isaiah's promises, we saw that there was some obscurity there, but there was also some clarity in describing the character of the one who is going to come and was going to set things right, was going to be the agent by which God's redemptive plan was going to, to come in, in full force. But it was still a good way off. And I, Isaiah wrote over 700 years before Jesus' birth actually took place. Well, we're making progress this morning. We're going to go from astronomical dawn to nautical dawn, and you can see the difference in the sky. And nautical dawn is the time at which there's enough sunlight for the horizon and some objects to be distinguishable when the sun is 12 degrees below the horizon. So we're getting closer. Uh, and, and you might think if you're a long, long way off that that's actually the sun shining. It's not. It's a light on a house uh, that's, that's on the coast there. And, and if you're close enough, you can probably tell that's, that's somewhere on a lake. That's somewhere uh, near water. There's a little jetty there that kind of sticks out a little bit. But you're not quite sure what it is. But you can see a little bit more. And we're going to go from Isaiah this morning to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to focus on God's uh, redemption, God's promises beginning to be fulfilled. There are some objects that are now going to be distinguishable. And what do those say about our salvation? And what do those say about God's redemptive purposes in our life? What's coming into focus regarding God's redemption? That's the question that we want to uh, look to these passages this morning to understand. So I'm going to read Isaiah 9 kind of as a backdrop, as a reminder of where we've been. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday or the Sunday before, you can go by our table and get a CD or you can listen to it online to kind of catch up. But we're not going to spend any time in Isaiah this morning. We're just going to read it to give us background. We're going to spend our time in Luke chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Follow along in your Bibles or, or on the screen. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, the prophet Isaiah writes. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, 
of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light on those who dwelt in the deep, excuse me, in the land of deep darkness. On them, a light has shined or a light has dawned. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot for tramping warrior and battle of tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in Luke chapter 1, we come to the the prophecy, the song of Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And so we've now entered into the time right before the birth of Jesus. This is the generation that we'll see the Messiah in the flesh, and it's been revealed to Zechariah that his son will be the forerunner, will be the messenger that comes before the Christ. And as this is made known to him, he begins to break out into a prophetic song, and it says that Isaiah, excuse me, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us, excuse me, to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come before you this morning seeking to know your word. Father, we come as people who uh, live in a, in a very broken world that with moment is shown radiance of joy and delight and in other moments of great despair. Lord, I thank you what Monica said this morning that, that even as she thinks about it, sometimes it's in the context of the twilight, the twilight of death, the twilight of broken relationships, the, the sunset of, of love and, and, and the coming of the darkness of, of hurt and of anguish. Father, every person in this room has experienced some kind of pain in our lives, spiritual, emotional, Some of us may be right in the middle of it right this morning. We're here because we're hoping that beyond hope there might be some truth that can be revealed that would make sense out of the chaos we see around us. Father, some of us are coming with sad hearts because we are estranged from people that we love. 
people that love us. Father, some of us come with hard hearts we don't want to hear. We're satisfied where we are. We, we're not completely content, but we've made the best of it, and, and that's probably all that can be expected. Father, some of us come this morning longing to, to hear your voice, coming in faith, trusting that, that you will open our eyes once again to show us your truth, to reveal yourself to us, that we could actually walk in the light of the dawn in a very practical and real way. So, Father, whatever has brought us here, Ultimately, you have, your hand is upon each life, whether we acknowledge it or not. We thank you that we're going to spend time in your word. Lord, what I have to say is, is completely unimportant. I do not have the, the power, the persuasion to change hearts and minds. If we're here to hear Tom Ricks, we're, we're wasting our time. Father, we, we come to sit at the feet of Jesus, and we ask that he would teach us. Lord, forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know this morning about your truth, about your character, and about your redemption. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a minute ago, Luke 1, uh, the second half of Luke 1 is primarily uh, this prophetic song that that Zechariah bursts into when uh, he discovers that his son is going to be the one who ultimately becomes John the Baptist, the one who will prepare the way for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, but I don't want to deal so much with Zechariah this morning in kind of the context of his life, but rather I want to look at his message, look at the word that the Holy Spirit gave him, because the author, Luke, is very clear that, that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that what we're getting from Zechariah this morning uh, is no different than if, that if God set foot in this room and began to talk to us face to face, this would be the message. And so we look to uh, Redemption's Horizon with a longing, with an anticipation to see those objects that are now distinguishable. And how does that help in your life and in my life as we walk out of here and, and go back into uh, a very broken world that with, uh, where we face many very real problems and issues and challenges on a daily basis? Well, the first thing I'd like for us to kind of concentrate on for a moment is what is distinguished? What are the objects that are now visible? And if you go through the first section of this, there are a lot more than I'm going to point out, but I've, I've tried to capture uh, the theme of the, the, the beginning verses as Isaiah speaks, because, or excuse me, as Zechariah speaks, because as Zechariah speaks, he talks about the things that God has done. He talks about what is happening uh, in, the, in the plan of redemption in the mind of God as he brings the servant of his on to the scene, and he actually looks back. He doesn't look at the present and he doesn't look forward. He actually takes a moment and he gives us a very brief but very important history lesson. And he talks about several things that God has done. And what he says is that that what's distinguishable now, the first thing he says is God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. That horn of salvation is, is a term that's used uh, to describe the power of salvation, that, that this horn is filled with, with the announcement, the strong announcements. If someone were to, to blast the bugle, everybody surrounding would be able to hear it very clearly. There's no ambiguity. There's no confusion. When this announcement comes, it means that salvation is at hand. And he says, God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. He also said, God will show the mercy that he promised to our fathers. 
And he's talking about the generations that have come before him. He even, even mentions the word prophets there, which we're not going to take time to look at. But he's looking back and he's saying, you know, God has promised to show mercy. And, and as my son comes onto the scene, I know that this means that, that there's going to be a physical representation of God's mercy. Because the role of my child is to prepare the way of the Lord. It's right here. We're right on the cusp. It's just 12 degrees below the horizon. We can begin to see that God is going to show this mercy he has promised. And then he says, God will remember his holy covenant. And, and you know if you've been here for a while, but this may be new to you, a covenant is, is nothing more than, a, than an, a, an Old Testament term for a legal contract, a binding agreement between two individuals. And there are all kinds of different promises. There are all kinds of different covenants that are made. But God made a binding contract with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would bring redemption. And so Zechariah steps back and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, what can we see? We can see that God is at work to bring about his plan for mankind. But, but what it, beyond these actions, beyond these metaphors, what is distinguishable about God? Well, let's, let's look at where, Isaiah, or where Zechariah goes next. He actually is telling us that God keeps his word, that God makes promises. And when God makes you a promise, you can trust that promise. Now, that's important to all of us. Because if God isn't trustworthy, what are we doing here this morning? If God doesn't mean what he says, why on earth are we wasting our time? There's a lot of other things that we could be doing. And probably every person in this room, with the exception of a couple of the infants that are asleep on mama's lap right now, have experienced a promise broken. You've experienced the heartache or the hurt. Maybe it, maybe it was from a casual relationship, but it wasn't that painful. But maybe it was somebody you really trusted. Maybe somebody that, that really, you really thought they loved you. You really thought they cared, and yet you find out that their word didn't really mean anything. And that creates an emotional angst in our hearts that does not go away easily. Some of our longest-term issues in our lives that we deal with maybe as husband and wife or we deal with as parents come from broken trust. And so if God doesn't keep his words, friends, we should stop wasting our time and go about our business. But Zechariah says, do you see it's becoming clearer? The promises of God are good and they're true. When he, says that, when he says that he's going to bring us someone from the household of David, he's hearkening back to 2 Samuel. Over 2,000 years before Jesus comes, God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 where he says to the king, your throne shall be established forever. Is that a promise we can trust? Zechariah says yes. God has remembered that promise. Then he talks about our fathers, and we've already read Isaiah 9. I'm not going to go back to that. But again, 700 years previous, through the prophets, God had been making promise after promise that he would bring redemption. And then he goes back actually to the oldest example of the covenant in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. One of the things that's coming into focus is that God keeps his word. That if God makes a promise, you can trust in it. He's not going to speak with any sort of uh, triteness. He's not going to treat his promises with any kind of triviality. But if he makes a promise, he's going to keep it, even if it means the cost of his own son on the cross. 
That's how much God values his word. Well, if we pull us apart just a little bit more, what are the traits of redemption that are distinguishable here? Um, what does Zechariah's song tell us about the character of God? You know, the character is, is who you are kind of when nobody's looking, so to speak. Cindy has a, a one remaining grandparent living. Grandma Graf is, she's either 95 or 96. And about, I think it was about four or five weeks ago, Grandma Graf had come, she lives in Minnesota on the farm. She still lives on the farm. Uh, Grandpa Graf passed away about three years ago. She lives on the farm by herself. She'd been outside shoveling snow and chipping some ice off the sidewalk. This, this I need to give you a little context. This is Grandma Grafton. Six years ago, we were up doing the roof uh, on their house, and she's 89. And we had to position a person at the stepladder to keep her from trying to climb up on the roof, okay? So that's Grandma Graf. She comes in from, from chipping the ice and shoveling the snow. She's putting her coat away, and she falls down the stairs into the basement. And she shatters her femur. She climbs back up the stairs. She gets the phone. She calls the 911 to get an ambulance. Then while she's lying there, she thinks, I might not survive this. I'm going to call my three kids, and I'm going to tell them goodbye, just in case. She's driving everybody crazy at the nursing home right now because she doesn't want to use her walker with her leg in a full body cast because she thinks she can get around without anybody's help. (laughs) That tells you something about Grandma Graf's character. That tells you not to mess with Grandma. (laughs) This is one strong woman. And she wasn't going to let falling down some, some stairs and shattering a leg stand in the way of, of, of her being okay. It tells you something about her as a person. What does this message tell us about the character of God? Well, the, the first thing that, that um, we learned is that we have a knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. As Zechariah is talking about what God is going to do, he says, I, I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read it for you in verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What is God's posture towards rebellious mankind? Not when you're real good, not when you're doing what you should be doing, not when you're you know, dressed up in church and looking like you're paying attention to the pastor and maybe put a little money in the offering as you come and go. What's God's posture towards you and towards me when we really mess it up? When, when the sin that is living within our hearts manifests itself in some very, very ugly ways. What is God's response to rebellious mankind? It is grace in the extreme. It is the cross. Zechariah's words were true because Jesus was coming to pay for your sins and for my sins. And God is a forgiving God. God is a redemptive God. And even if it costs him the cross, he will keep his promise to save. Is that the God that you and I know this morning? Is that the picture that you have in your mind when you think about the glorious God in heaven? The ruler of all that is? Do you see him as one who is gracious, the one who is kind, the one who looks at your rebellion and my rebellion and doesn't let that stop him from being in relationship with us? How many times have you said, well, I'm not going to be in relationship with that person anymore. They hurt me, and I'm not going to let them hurt me again. They don't seem to ever learn their lessons, so they can do what they want to do, but I'm going my own way. God had every right to say that about you and me and about every other person that's ever lived, but he didn't. He sent his messenger before the day of the Lord because the Lord was going to come and say, God will forgive your sins. Grace in the extreme. 
The second trait that is, is clear here is found in verses 78 and 79, where God, uh, Zechariah talks about the tender mercy of our God. And that tender mercy leads to the sunset from, sunrise from on high, the, one, the light that's coming into the world. A light to those sitting in darkness in the land of the shadow of death. And there he goes right back to Isaiah chapter 9, and he quotes directly from him. But this, this light that's coming is given through the tender mercy of God. I love that phrase. I have it underlined and highlighted in my Bible. The idea of, of tender mercy. The, the idea of one who is not just redemptive, one who is not just gracious, but he understands our hurt. He understands our pain. He understands our brokenness. And am I, am I resting in God? Am I trusting in his compassion? His tender mercy means he has a gentleness. He has a kindness to him in the way in which he d- deals with us. So he doesn't just come and say, look, here's a cross. Take it or leave it. I'm busy. Let's go. We got to move on. But he's like a father or a mother who, who has a child who's been wounded, been hurt, been broken. And they need dad just to put their arms around them. Or they need mom just to, to comfort them. It's not the time to give advice. It's not the time to explain to them where they went wrong. It's just a time to hold them. And parents get this. Good, good parents get this. They know when to care for their kids. I remember when, when Katie broke up with her very first boyfriend. And it was a tumultuous, terrible, awful experience because they had been dating for like four days. And it was just... <laughs> The world had come to an end. I'm being a little silly about that one, but I remember when she broke up with her her real, I mean, the first real serious one. They had dated half of their junior year, all of their senior year, and into their freshman year in college. And on fall break, she came home just to be with him, and and he broke up with her, and she was devastated. And I remember just holding her. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I'll go kill him if you want me to. I don't mind. Got a big backyard. I can bury him out by the tracks. Nobody will ever find him. Not a, not a big deal. And then she was like, yeah, would you please? <laughs> like, think about what I'm going to promise before I promise it. <laughs> but I just held her. And her mom just held her, scratched her back, just let her sit there and weep. There's a tenderness. There's a gentleness. And I would venture to say that the vast majority of the people in this room, including the guy giving the sermon, we don't start there with God. We, it takes us a while to remember that God's tender. He's compassionate. This salvation, this message, helps us understand the character of our God as a, as a compassionate God. But then notice the last thing, too. It says, he will guide our feet into the way of peace, in verse 79. Now, it's interesting that we have to be guided into the way of peace. It means that we're not on that pathway. <laughs> we're actually on the pathway of hostility, truth be told. Now, you might not want to believe that. You might want to think that you're not a hostile person. But I have the data here to, to prove that you are. Um, the title of this uh, news piece is Retailers Brace for Flood of Angry Shoppers. And uh, apparently, y'all have been really uh, emotionally damaging people who work in retail. Um, shoppers have become angrier, suggests a recent study by Comsight Corp., a provider of employee assistance programs. This year, Comsight has seen a marked increase in the number of acute stress counseling sessions it provides to U.S. retailers related to customer abuse. That's you guys. The number rose 13% in 2006, followed by 65% jump uh, last year. So um, we're not very nice when we go shopping. Toys R Us uh, guy was interviewed. It says to keep customers under control, uh, 
lest a stressed out shopper become a violent shopper. Uh, this guy of security said that we, uh, we beef up security in the holidays, including hiring plainclothes officers uh, in its aisles and checkout lines. So then I found another article on um, Walmart. And I'm just going to read a little piece of this for you. I found this interesting. Walmart's offering super low prices. This was the, the Black Friday thing. Some popular electronics, but standing in line for hours only to be told that the store was out of its limited supply within minutes isn't sitting well with some customers. That was a terrible shopping, a woman at Maryland Walmart, uh, who would only go by Miss Newman because she was supposed to be at work, <laughs> told CNN. <laughs> on Friday morning. There were fights. Some folks were there at 1 a.m., but they didn't get what they wanted. They need to get more stuff in that show. CNN showed a video affiliate with shoppers scuffling at a Walmart store, uh, saying laptops were being thrown 20 feet in the air. People were collapsing on each other to grab them. It was ridiculous. And then here's a quote by the Walmart, one of the employees at the Walmart store who saw this. They trampled each other for him, one Walmart employee said at the Maryland store. It was great. He was just happy that we had turned on each other. (laughs) Our way is a way of hostility. Our way is a way of saying, I'm going to get what I want, even if I have to knock you down to get it. If I have to step on you as well as over you to get that toy for Christmas or to get that promotion or or, or to get my way in in our marriage, I'm going to force you to bend to my will. We're a people of hostility. But what is God? I'm not going to put these verses on the screen, but I would encourage the further study for you in these. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, reading through verse 19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so that making, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. The character of the one who redeems is a character of the one who will establish peace. He will bring about a unity that has never been known in the world before through this one who comes to save. And the dawn is getting closer. And we can see more clearly his redemption And through Zechariah's words, we get a clarification that God is keeping a gracious promise and he's doing it in a way that draws men and women to him in love and in mercy and kindness. And that is an important truth because as I said at the outset, if we can't trust God, then why are we wasting our time? But that's not the only question this morning. The deeper issue, I believe, because a lot of folks in this room, probably the majority of people in this room, would consider themselves standing in the light of the dawn of salvation. Probably many of us in this room would say, I've confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. He he is my Redeemer. I believe in the cross and what Christ has done for me. So this has all been repetitive up to this point. You've heard all of this before. And you may be saying, Tom, that's exactly where I stand today. 
And that's why I think there's a deeper question, because I would confess that that's where I stand today. But the deeper question, has, has my dawn of redemption, has the dawn of redemption that's come into Tom Ricks's life had any impact whatsoever on anybody else? Because you see, friends, the dawn doesn't just come through the Word of God, but it comes through the people of God. And as I look at the character traits of God, do I see those reflected in my own life? God says that, that salvation has come through the forgiveness of sins. Has God's forgiveness created a forgiving spirit within me? Is there within me a humble confession of sin? Is that evidence in my life to the people around me know that I'm quick to acknowledge when I've wronged them and ask for their forgiveness? The people in my life who have wronged me and come to me and say, Tom, here's what I did and I, and I shouldn't have done it. Would you forgive me? Do they experience the grace and mercy of God? Is forgiveness really living in my heart? Is it living in you? Or is that part of our lives still in darkness? Has the light not quite reached that far into your soul and into mine? Sometimes forgiveness is simple. Sometimes somebody steps on your toe. And it's not that hard to say, you know, they say, oh, I'm sorry, I stepped on your toe, I didn't mean it, would you forgive me? Sure, not a big problem. But there are more profound issues in our lives that are not petty, that are not simple, that are not easy to forgive. Am I willing to bring my anger? Am I willing to bring my resentment? Are you willing to bring your hurt into the light of redemption? Am I willing to acknowledge that I hate that person and I don't want to forgive them? And if God doesn't do something miraculous in my heart, I never will. And I'm going to stand here stubbornly because I've been hurt so deeply. The thought of forgiving that person makes me want to be physically sick. Friends, I understand what we're talking about here is no simple thing. I know the depth and the, and, and the profound impact that some hurt can have in our lives. But understand the hurt that Christ went through to be able to look you in the eye and be able to look me in the eye and say, you are forgiven 100% completely pure and clean. And I've already forgotten your sin. I've thrown it as far as the east is from the west. God has treated us with that grace that should be the defining experience in my life that leads me to be a person of forgiveness. It's not simple sometimes. And the, and the answer is not just say, okay, got it. I'm going to forgive that person. We, you may need to enter into therapy for a couple of years before you're able to get there. I understand that. But are we willing to start that journey? Could it be that an enemy today at some point, tomorrow, next week, next year, on your deathbed 40 years from now, experiences God's grace for the only time in their life because they sinned against you in, in such an abusive manner and yet you forgave them. Perhaps that might be the moment of their salvation. Am I willing to confess my sin? Am I willing to, to set my pride aside or to bring my pride into the light and say, you know what, I don't like to ask anybody for forgiveness. I, I want to always be right. I want to insist that it's your fault, not my fault. And I, and I do a lot of harm and a lot of damage with my prideful spirit. Am I willing to bring my pride into the, to the light of the redemption of God that comes through the forgiveness of sins? Friends, if forgiveness doesn't mark the pathway of Christians, then I would dare say we should, we should stop and check and see if our faith is genuine at all. Because Jesus came to forgive. And that character needs to be transforming my life and bring me to that place too. But he's also the one who is tender. 
in his mercy. And I, and I said, am I a tender, person of tender mercy or an avenging, avenging angel? You know, that's the hat I'd like to wear. I'd like to be the one who comes in and, and says, okay, I'm going to get all you guys. <laughs> you know, I happen to be okay, but you all have some serious problems. Um, you know, I'm that angry shopper too. <laughs> but how quick are we to, to point out the sin in another person? Not because we want them to experience God's forgiveness, but because we want to we use that as a club to beat them and to keep them down and to show them where they're wrong. Does the tender mercy of God reflect my heart as I engage with others? There's a good friend of mine who's a counselor confronted me one time uh, with this question, which I'll, I'll probably keep with me every day in my life. And it's not that, you know, it is profound, but it's pretty simple. Tom, do you want to win the argument or do you want to win the person? That's a good question. The tender mercy of God says, I want to win the person. Because they're dear to him, they're dear to me. Is that true in my life? And then this last one is, is are, are, are our feet on the path of peace? Are we a peacemaker or a rabble-rouser? I just wanted to use that term. I, I rabble-rouser is a great term. I just wanted to throw it in there somewhere. But it's accurate. Am I one who seeks to make the peace? Which means sometimes I, I got I to gotta bring the disagreement front and center. It might be hard. It might be uncomfortable. It might be difficult. I might be the only person that says, we really need to talk about this. And everybody else is trying to run out the door. And we say, no, we got, we got to work through this. Making the peace isn't always easy. But am I willing to be the person who does that? Or do I just simply add fuel to the fire with my gossip and with my angst and with my hostility? God has transformed us. He's brought us into light. And he's put our feet on the pathway of peace. Do we live at peace with others? Do these characteristics of God mark your life and my life? I was with a group of uh, disciples of, of Jesus last week in another city. And we were talking about some very difficult things that had happened in, in the course of this uh, last few months in this particular congregation. And we're sitting in a circle, and we, and we said, anybody who wants to share can share. This is time to kind of get it all out on the table so we kind of know how we're going to deal with this. And we had about two hours of people going around. And we got all done, and I said, I, I just want to make sure, is there anybody left who wants to, wants to share? And kind of straight across from me, actually, she raised her hand, and, uh, and I think she was originally from Japan. And she said, yeah, I, I haven't said anything. I would like to say something. And she said, I, I've only been coming here a little while, a couple months, and I'm not a Christian. But I, you know, I, I've been drawn to, you know, to this church. And she said, I, I listen to you and I hear a lot of me, me, me. I don't think that's what you believe. The light is dawning. It's coming. The cross is on the horizon. It's a gracious God. It's a tender Father. He's putting us on the pathway to peace by his strength, by his word, by his spirit. May we represent that in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, I, I'm so quick to rejoice in Zechariah's song because it means I, I, I'm saved. <laughs> it means I have hope. It means I don't have to despair. It means that you treat me in a way that I do not deserve. Compassion and tenderness and forgiveness. And when I've rebelled against you, you haven't 
listed all my sins and said, okay, Tom, good luck trying to pay for these for the rest of eternity. You sent your son to die on a cross. And I claim to believe that. And then I turn around and I, and I live as if that were not true. I live as if I was, I was a situational atheist. I choose when I'm going to be angry and hostile towards someone because they hurt my feelings. I determine that that, that person isn't worth forgiving. I'm not going to let them hurt me again. I don't look a thing like the redemptive, gracious, merciful Father who tenderly holds me in his arms and grants me a grace I do not deserve. But Father, I would, I would guess that there are others in this congregation this morning who maybe are feeling that same way. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we can, we can bring our, our hard hearts and our, and our stubbornness to you. But Father, don't let it stop there. I pray that you would transform my heart. I pray that you would transform our hearts so that what is true about your character would not only shine forth in your word, but would shine forth in our lives. That the world would see the dawn has come. The darkness has been broken. And that redemption is for mankind. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.